I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with leading historians and best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing Ronald White about his new book, Lincoln in Private, what his most personal reflections tell us about our greatest president. The book came out May 4, 2021, and we did the interview in front of a virtual audience on May 5th, 2021. Enjoy. Ron White, uh, for those of you who uh, read your e-invite or the Wall Street Journal today, uh, is uh, my favorite Abraham Lincoln scholar. There have been over 16,000 books written on Abe Lincoln. I told you about his cradle to grave uh, biography, A. Lincoln, but he also wrote one, Lincoln's Greatest Speech, about uh, Lincoln's second inaugural address, the one that ends with, with malice toward none, with charity for all, which Ron calls Lincoln's Sermon on the Mount. He also <laughs> has another one called The Eloquent President, just about uh, the accumulation of Lincoln's amazing eloquence. And then we have this one, Lincoln in Private. Ron also wrote a fantastic biography of Ulysses S. Grant uh, that came out uh, three or four years ago that was a New York Times bestseller, as was A. Lincoln. Uh, he is, uh, many of you know, former President George W. Bush is, is, is a huge uh, Lincoln aficionado. He said during his White House years, he read, I believe it was 18 different biographies of, of Lincoln, but he had Ron come to the White House. He's had Ron go to the, his ranch in Crawford. Uh, uh, he's quite the fan, as are many others. And so Ron's appeared on PBS and uh, all kinds of uh, documentaries about Lincoln. So, Ron, uh, we're glad you're here. We're delighted that a person of your uh expertise and, and, and writing style has, has devoted so much of your career to writing about uh, my favorite president, Abraham Lincoln. So, so thanks for, for sticking to it with, with Abe Lincoln. Uh, but let's start with this book. Uh, this is kind of a, a thin slice of Lincoln, unlike a, a cradle to grave, where you focus entirely on the 111 notes to himself written on scraps or fragments uh, how did this idea come to you that this subject of just these notes would be bookworthy, self-contained bookworthy? Well, thank you, Talmadge. Really, it's been a long, winding trail. When I decided to write on the second inaugural, I was asking myself, is there an antecedent to this? And I learned that Lincoln had written a note to himself. The note was, is now at the John Hay Library at Brown University. Hay was one of Lincoln's secretaries. So I traveled there and held in my hand, I don't think they'd let you do that anymore, the blue-lined paper where Lincoln wrote what John Hay called, Lincoln didn't title his notes, the Meditation on the Divine Will. At the time, I had no idea that there were 111 notes. And over the years, I began to see note after note, but they're spread across these large multi-volume collections of Lincoln. And uh, it occurred to me that they were so important to Lincoln, but we have not really understood their importance. And so this became a project. I contact contacted the Abraham Lincoln Papers Project in Springfield, 
And I said, how many notes or fragments? Fragments means that often Lincoln would begin a note almost in the middle of a word. He'd end without finishing a sentence. He was called away to do something else. And they said, well, we think there's 111 of them. We have 110, and the other one is in Dallas, Texas, <laughs> in the possession of Harlan Crow and Sam Four, his wonderful curator, who gave me permission to use that great, great fragment on slavery. So I said, let's look at this together. We know a lot about the public Lincoln, the Lincoln of the Gettysburg Address, but I don't think we know as much as I would like to know, and I think readers would like to know, of the private Lincoln. So this is really the private Lincoln. He wrote these notes. He never dated them, never titled them, never signed them. He never thought we would ever see them. Mm -hmm. Well, as you point out in your uh, introduction, uh, one of Lincoln's closest friends on the Illinois legal circuit, Judge David Davis, uh, said that Lincoln was, quote, the most reticent, secretive man I ever saw or expect to see. Now, Ron, do you think that, that this trait of being reticent and secretive was tied to his not wanting to share his thoughts with anyone until he had finalized them? That's a very good observation, Talmadge. Yes, often, let's take 1854. This is when the Kansas-Nebraska Act is passed, which would uh, forbid the extension of slavery, which would open the extension of slavery into the territories. Well, Lincoln was flabbergasted. He was outraged by this, but he held his fire for two or three months because he had to gather his thoughts. He had to do a lot of reading. And only when he was ready was he prepared to speak. So these notes are where he's get readying himself to then offer some phenomenal public speeches. Well, for many of these written fragments that you analyze in the book, you say you had to imagine the context in which they were written. As you said, they weren't dated, they weren't titled, there was no written context of what caused him to sit down and, and write these notes. So what was your process for attempting to formulate a conclusion about the likely scenarios that led to his writing down each of these notes? Well, certainly the foundation of writing a biography of Lincoln gave me a, a larger context. But yet I approached each one on its own. I'm sure there's lawyers in our audience today. And I think one of the most phenomenal ones is the so-called notes for a lecture to lawyers. Now, we don't believe he ever gave the lecture. There's no evidence that he did. And about 30 years ago, we began discovering the people of, in, in Illinois began searching the 102 county courthouses in Illinois and pulled together hundreds and hundreds of Lincoln legal documents that had, were not known before. But all of those documents are not as important as this Notes for a Law lecture, where he offers to really, I think, young aspiring lawyers what he would want them to know. He spent about 185 days a year out on what was called the Eighth Judicial Circuit. This was twice the size of Connecticut in central Illinois. In those days, to become a lawyer, you became a law clerk. You studied with a lawyer. And many men, I think young men, wanted to study with Lincoln, but he didn't have time to do that. He was always out doing something. So in I this is my imagination. He said, well, I'll write a lecture for these lawyers. And it's a remarkable lecture. Yeah, and the Lincoln Bicentennial, the uh, 
Texas Bar Journal, which is the monthly publication of the State Bar of Texas, <clears throat> published that notes for a lecture on law. That's that's one of these fragments. So at least the lawyers in this audience, uh, I suspect, are, are very familiar with it. And, and, and I speak on it often in terms of the, the timeless message that has every bit as much application to lawyers today as it did uh, you know, over 150 years ago when, when, when Lincoln wrote it. Now, you say uh, in your prologue that you've now lived with Lincoln for three <laughs> decades, which you have, since this is your fourth book about them, and these books do not get written in one year or two years or three years. You've lived with him for three decades, and yet in your research for this one and analyzing all of these uh, notes, you found some new things about Lincoln from his notes to himself that you'd never really realized before. So, so what are the most important new things that you learned, the two or three most important new things that were really an epiphany about Lincoln that, that you had not uh, thought about before? Well, Lincoln prized himself on being a very rational, very logical person. I knew that that grew from his early experiences as a boy and a young man. He grew up in Kentucky and Southern Illinois, uh, Southern Indiana, in what we would call the Second Great Awakening. His parents attended Baptist churches, no offense to any Baptists, but the churches were very emotional. And even as a young person, he reacted against that emotion. So Lincoln publicly never really wanted to express his feelings. He would be logical. But in this one note, he does express his feelings. This context, he had run for the Senate in 1855. Senators were elected by state legislators, state legislatures until the 20th century. And he led on the first seven ballots. And he was running on an anti-Nebraska platform. In other words, he was against the extension of slavery. And finally, it became apparent to him that perhaps he couldn't win this race. His adherents wanted him to stay in it, but he said, no, I'm going to withdraw. There's a Democrat who's also anti-Nebraska. I would rather have him win than me. So after he loses the race, he's very magnanimous. It's okay. The right person won. The cause goes forward. But in this note, he says, and we can date this note because he said, Stephen Douglas and I met 22 years ago. This is the other great Illinois senator. And he said, we were both ambitious. I was probably as ambitious as he. He said, Stephen Douglas has risen to the highest eminence. But as for me, my life is nothing but a failure. Nothing but a flat failure. My goodness, he would never have said that in public. But this was his feeling. And within less than four years, he will be president of the United States. So this is why these notes are so important to allow us to see the private Lincoln behind the public Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Now, the third chapter in your book is about the fragment that really opens the door to Lincoln's analysis of the slavery issue. And a key part of his thinking on slavery was his decision to absolutely seize on the Declaration of Independence and prioritize its importance over the Constitution. So explain that decision. Well, Lincoln had great uh, deference and appreciation for the founders. And as he re-entered politics, he 
ran for one term in Congress, 1847 to 1849. He took a very, in some circles, unpopular stand against the war with Mexico. He criticized President James Polk. So after the one term, he comes home to Illinois, and many of his friends say, well, thank you very much. That's the only term you'll ever serve in the legislature. So he becomes a full-time lawyer. But when the Kansas-Nebraska Act is passed five years later, he must now enter the political fray again. And what he does is to suggest that behind the Constitution, prior to the Constitution, is the Declaration of Independence, that it is the principle all men are created equal. The Constitution, as important as it is, is the kind of structure of, of how we're then going to govern this country. But it's not the Constitution. He's not derogatory of the Constitution. It is the Declaration. And to our surprise, this surprised me, the Declaration, in a certain sense, had been gathering dust in the early part of the 19th century. People were grateful for it because it, it, it showed that we were now going to separate ourselves from Great Britain. But we weren't really taking the all men are created equal and asking, what does that mean in our time? And this is what Lincoln is asking. What does this mean in our time? I should have said this at the outset, but to the extent uh, anybody in our audience wants to, has a question for Ron, please uh, write it up in the chat box. And uh, at the end of the program, hopefully we'll have time to, to answer uh, most, if not all of them. So, so don't forget about that. Uh, Ron, one of the most impressive traits about Lincoln as a debater and a public speaker in the political realm was his intellectual honesty in that he always accurately stated his opponent's position on an issue before he would then proceed to tear it apart with his own superior logic, as he did in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. So was intellectual honesty in politics as rare in Lincoln's era as it is today when seemingly every candidate in the 21st century operates in a mode of distorting his opponent's position? That's a terrific observation. Well, and again, let me go back. Really, we think of Lincoln the politician, but he served only 12 years in politics. He served 24 years as a lawyer. And I think he really learned this characteristic from his practice as a lawyer, that he understood uh, from his second partner, Logan, that you must understand honestly the point of view of your opponent. You must enter into the intellectual argument. You must even enter into the emotional argument of your opponent. And if you do not do so, you will not be able to therefore present your own case. So yes, as you suggest, Talmadge, Lincoln wanted to fairly present the argument. So for example, the Lincoln, the, the, the Kansas-Nebraska Act was based on what was called popular sovereignty. Stephen Douglas argued that people ought to be able to vote on slavery. If Kansas wanted slavery, they could vote it up or down. And Lincoln starts out by saying, well, popular sovereignty does sound like a wonderful democratic principle. That's what Douglas argues it is. But then he said, but wait a second, can we vote on whether a Negro, the term he would have used in his day, is a person or not? That is absolutely inadmissible. This is a person. This is not property. 
And this is where Lincoln is kind of going ahead of his time, ahead of the Dred Scott decision, ultimately, in the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Now, from 1854, when he, as you say, re-entered politics in response to the Kansas-Nebraska Act that aimed to expand slavery in the Western territories, until September 1862, when he wrote the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln evolved in his thoughts about the slavery issue, originally rejecting abolitionism because he thought that although abolitionists might be morally right, they would never get elected to anything. And as you say in the fragment chapter five, this was a big part of his thinking as he decided to join the Republican Party. But then after he became president, of course, he finally embraced the need for slavery to be abolished uh, during his presidency. And there are many people today who have been who have criticized Lincoln because he didn't embrace and advocate total abolition of slavery early on. He didn't do it until his presidency. And that's why some people want to take down his statue and, and things like that. So, Ron, when you hear 21st century criticism of Lincoln along those lines, what's your reaction? I'm afraid it says a lot about us and not a lot about Lincoln. It really is it makes me quite angry, actually, when the uh, Freedman statue, for example, was dedicated in 1876 and Frederick Douglass was the speaker. This has become a big issue. And so people will proof text Frederick Douglass's speech in which early in the speech, he says, Lincoln was the white man's president. OK, OK. But read the rest of the speech where he goes on to say, in a sense, as the white man's president, he was fast, speedy, far beyond others in terms of recognizing the need of African-Americans and signing the Emancipation Proclamation. So I think part of the way we all should judge any particular politician then or now is not what they said in 1994, but what they're saying in 2021. And so Lincoln does develop. I think that's one of the great characteristics of him. He's able to develop in every area of his life. He's able to move forward. Why? How? Well, as new experiences interact with him, as new ideas come to him. This is part of the reason that I've written this book. And the fact that he can develop and move forward is, I think, one of the great traits of why he is our greatest president. Mm -hmm. Now, in your sixth chapter, uh, Lincoln's note to himself on the fragment is very brief. I'm going to read it now. He said, quote, as I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. This expresses my idea of democracy. Whatever differs from this to the extent of the difference is no democracy, close quote. That's the whole note. Yes. So in your discussion of this private thought in your sixth chapter, you point out how Lincoln often used the word democracy in the Lincoln-Douglas debates and his other speeches because it was an essential part of his attitude toward the slavery issue. But what did Lincoln see as the relationship between democracy on the one hand and slavery on the other? Again, this is his development. I'm convinced he started the Civil War to save the Union. 
But as he says in the Gettysburg Address, we now need a new birth of freedom. And I think that metaphor, new birth, is religious as much as it is political. Christians experience a new birth. He was very aware of that. And so what he's suggesting is that the expansion of democracy or the expansion of all men are created equal must now include the abolition of slavery, that the, the understanding of democracy must grow and expand as the nation does. And I think, again, this is part of his genius. Well, this uh, next question ties into what we were talking a, a couple of minutes ago about intellectual honesty. But as you point out in your seventh chapter, a reason why Lincoln was such a stellar debater was that he immersed himself in knowing his opponent's position to the extent that he read books that were written by pro-slavery advocates. He subscribed to pro-slavery newspapers and read them constantly as part of his due diligence on the subject. And so in his own mind, as he moved toward finalizing his position on an issue, he wanted to give the other side what he called their day in court in his study of the issue. Now, when I read about this mindset, it seems to me it's almost a supernatural power that he had <laughs> to be able to fully analyze and repeatedly process opposing views and never ignore or short shrift them. I mean, did that strike you like, who does this? Who does this? And sadly, who does this today? I mean, that, that's the great problem today. Are we willing to read the other side and really try to understand what they are saying? So Lincoln returns from in 1849 from his single term in Congress, and his law partner, William Herndon, says, well, we ought to start subscribing to some anti-slavery newspapers, and that's fine. And so he did. He also had subscribed to some of the great national newspapers. But then he says, I also want to subscribe to the newspaper in Richmond and the Charleston Mercury and Fernand said, why would you want to do that? He said, well, we need to have both sides at the table. Lincoln has often been viewed as a person who read mostly newspapers and not books. But actually, he did read books. And so the chapter you're suggesting, Talmadge, he reads a book by Frederick Ross, a Presbyterian minister in Huntsville, Alabama. And he's, the book title is Slavery Ordained by God. And so Lincoln understands that these people are going to use the Bible to, and other sources, and he reads this very, very carefully. But then he writes a note about it. What's interesting is it never occurs in any of his public speeches. But at the end of that note, he becomes so angry with what Ross is arguing that he uses triple exclamation points to suggest, how dare you decide that this is what God's will should be about? It's really a remarkable fragment. <clears throat> We have a wonderful question from the audience that I'm going to ask now. Mm -hmm. uh, Subair Biniakob, I know I mispronounced that, but it ties into to this Lincolnian uh, reliance on logic. And yes. The reviews zero in on his reading of the of Euclid. And so the question from Zubair is: You mentioned how significant an influence Euclid and his work was on Lincoln's thought process, were there any other key role models or influencers on Lincoln's thought process of 
uh, analyzing the most logical uh, approach to uh, discerning issues. Well, I think I think the greatest role model in his life, which was both political and logical, was Henry Clay. And Henry Clay was the great uh, politician from Kentucky. Three times he ran for the presidency. It's so interesting to me that Henry Clay's basic title was the great compromiser, something we don't want to do today. But if you go to his hand, his home in Ashland, uh, you will find he is the great compromiser. Lincoln found him to be what he called his beau ideal of a statesman. When he was traveling to Washington in 1847 to serve his single term in Congress, he stopped in Lexington, Mary's hometown, where her father, one of the leading citizens, had organized a meeting with Henry Clay. And here Henry Clay, who is a slaveholder, but on the other hand, is arguing that we must not participate in this war with Mexico, but this, because this is an effort of the South to expand into Mexico to extend slavery. And so this is where Lincoln is willing to, to enter into a person like Clay or Euclid, as the questioner suggests, so he can think this thing through much more carefully and thoroughly. Uh, following up on how rare it was for Lincoln to read pro-slavery books and pro-slavery newspapers. We have another great question from our mutual friend, Bill McKenzie, Bill. Uh, at the Bush Institute. And Bill wonders in terms of Lincoln's ability to sit on a thought for a time before expressing it, was that as rare among leaders then as it is today? Thank you, Bill, for the question. You know, I've been asked, uh, could Lincoln exist in our 24-7 news cycle where you have to reply instantaneously before you've even thought about it? I think it was pretty unusual. I, I, I use the phrase, my own phrase, is he held his fire. He wanted to speak out on issues, but he didn't want to speak until he was really prepared. And, uh, and, and I think this was unusual even in his day. I think someone like Stephen Douglas would not have held his fire. He was ready to speak at a moment's notice. So I, I, and I think this is one of the great traits of Lincoln that allows us to understand why he, why he is so good in his speaking. In my earlier books, I showed the various drafts, for example, of the first inaugural address, or the way that he rewrote the Gettysburg Address. He, he was a rewriter. When I get a chance to speak to students, I always like to say, there is no such thing as great writing. There's only great rewriting. And, and we need to learn how to do that. Lincoln was a great editor of his own writing. Now, here's another great follow-up question from our audience. Jeremy Mendel, again, as he tried to uh, get a hold of both sides of an issue, uh, his wife, Mary Todd, uh, many members of her family were pro-slavery. Members of her family fought for the Confederacy. Uh, was that part of, of Lincoln's uh, absorbing information on both sides of the issue, just within his own home or within his own family uh, to, to, to get his arms around both sides? It was, and, and, and one of the most remarkable episodes for me of Lincoln, when most of us are aware of the the death of Stonewall Jackson, shot by his own men, the great, really second leader to Robert E. Lee. Do you believe it? 
that Abraham Lincoln wrote an op-ed in a Washington newspaper praising Stonewall Jackson as a great Christian gentleman and soldier? I mean, today, the only reason the Civil War seems to be important is because it freed the slaves, and we've completely lost the understanding that it was, in a sense, to preserve the Union, and that many of these Northern persons wanted to be reconciling with their Southern brethren, that they admired them for their valor. They did not admire their cause, but this whole idea that we're going to tear down everything that has to do with the South, that would have been extremely surprising to Abraham Lincoln and to Ulysses S. Grant. Mm -hmm. We have a great question from Gary Ward, who's one of our sponsors. Gary, I'm going to hold that one and make it the last question. So know that I'm going to pay attention, but I think it's a great way to put an end to uh, closure to the, this conversation. Ron, uh, in the seventh chapter, you say that as Lincoln wrote these notes to himself, he wrote them, even though it's to himself, an audience of one, <laughs> he wrote them more as an orator than as a writer, and that this process acted as a, quote, private pressure valve for him. So uh, if he wrote these notes more as an orator than as a writer, was he really writing for an audience of one, or was he writing for a large audience? <laughs> well, what I meant to say was that, first of all, people all read out loud in the 19th century. And Lincoln would write by speaking before he put pen or pencil to paper. And one of his sort of his third secretary, a person by the name of Stoddard, once was in the room when Lincoln was writing something that was going to be delivered to a large meeting in Springfield, Illinois. He had been invited to come. He decided he just couldn't do it. But as Lincoln wrote this note, suddenly he started speaking. And he spoke with a loud voice. And so it's the secretary who says, my goodness, he was more of an orator than a speaker. By that, I mean, he, he wanted to hear the sound of the words. It wasn't that he necessarily was going to ultimately take this fragment and speak it. But his sense of the sound of the words, the power of the words, was very par a part of who he was in his writing. Now, on this issue of this exercise this process of writing notes to itself as being a private pressure valve. Yes. yes. Uh, did this cause Lincoln not to have a problem with anger? I think I asked you years ago, are there any recorded instances of where he truly got angry? And I thought about that when you said this was a private pr pressure valve. So comment on how much this helped him be not very angry most of the time. Well, he did deal with anger as a young man. I mean, the classic story is he was a young lawyer in Springfield, and uh, he heard that across the way someone was attacking the Whig Party, and he rushed across the street to defend the Whig Party. The Whigs were the predecessors of the Republicans. And he saw that this man had some sort of what we might call some sort of disability. He was shaking a bit or something like that. And Lincoln got up and imitated this man. And the man was so humiliated, he broke down in tears and ran out of the room. Lincoln could hurt people with his humor, with his sarcasm. So again, this whole idea of developing, we think of Lincoln as the magnanimous person with malice toward none, with charity for all. 
I think often when he wrote these notes too, he would write the first part of the note and then he would pause and say, oh my goodness, that sounds pretty abrupt. That sounds pretty harsh. And he would kind of then retool the note and write a second part of it. I've had fun in this regard, speaking to high school students all across the country. And I'll often ask them as they study 11th grade United States history, how long do you think it took Lincoln to write these notes? And they'll say two minutes, four minutes. And I said, nope, <laughs> I think it might've taken him sometimes an hour or two hours because these were notes that grew out of his contemplation about an issue. They were not just dashed off with a certain first thought. Well, and, and keep in mind, you know, he was not living in a computer right. age and so uh, with copying machines nearby. So when you put <laughs> something to paper in order to totally revise it, you'd have to start over. So before right. you put the pen to paper the first time, you wanted to be right. uh, extra uh, careful. But, uh, Ron, we have a question. You talk about uh, you're speaking to high schools, and of course, I read a lot of history. I interview a lot of historians. Uh, Trina Knox has a good question. Do we have the right curriculum in our public high schools to teach about Abraham Lincoln and, and, and the lessons of his life and the lessons of history? Uh, you know, you're in touch with these high schools. You're one of our leading historians. What's your assessment of, of, of where the education on it is these days? Tina, I can't, I can't comment on the curriculum unless, except this. The Gilder Lehrman Institute of New York City has been putting on for years now kind of seminars for teachers. And I've taught four or five times. It's often middle school and high school, but even elementary school. And sometimes, unfortunately, history is not a part of the kind of standardized exams that we offer to students. And so I've been offering seminars, almost enrichment seminars on Lincoln, suggesting to teachers how they could include Lincoln in their curriculum. I've actually done, uh, not wanting to be a salesman here, but a friend of mine said, why don't we try to put a, a, a DVD together uh, uh, on how you would teach the second inaugural? So we got the actor Richard Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus says the second inaugural, and then I talk about it, and then I have a teaching note on it, how you might teach Abraham Lincoln to eighth graders or 11th graders. I, I, I can't comment on the curriculum, but I'm confident that we need more of Lincoln in the curriculum. <laughs> now, as you point out in chapters eight and nine, Lincoln had an, un, uh, as president in particular, Lincoln had an unwillingness to compromise. And of course, as president-elect and as president, he had an unwillingness to compromise on the issues of restoring the Union and prohibiting slavery during the Civil War. And he's been criticized for that. The criticism is to the effect that the war could have been shortened with fewer lives lost if he'd been willing to compromise and get a settlement to end the war sooner rather than later, that would have allowed, if he would have been willing to compromise and agree to secession for some of the states or for the continuation of, of slavery. Again, when you hear criticism like that, what's your reaction, Ron? Well, you're, you're referring to a very, very, I think, important chapter Alexander Stevens, who became the vice president of the Confederacy, 
was a colleague of Lincoln in the 30th Congress and a very bright intellectual person who Lincoln deeply admired. The Whig Party at that time was a national party. So when Lincoln hears in, in December of 1860 that Stevens had given a speech in Georgia, Stevens was against secession, and he was speaking really in the a minority report. He writes to Stevens and said, gee, I would love to get your speech. So they exchange correspondence, but then Lincoln says to Stevens, but I think we have a different view here. I, I, this is my view on slavery, and I think your view is different. So Lincoln didn't want the war to come forward, but, but the war came forward as a way of preserving the Union. And the whole idea that it would have was unnecessary. It was unnecessary only if we would have returned what the opponents called the, the Union as it was, the Union with slavery. And so Lincoln, by the middle of the war, said, no, we must go forward in the, uh, in the uh, uh, imperative of the Declaration of Independence and have a new nation, a new birth of freedom. So I, I don't think those arguments really hold. Lincoln had actually offered the border states uh, money for their slaves. They could free them all the way till 1895. 1895. But when they rejected this, this is when he sat down and wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, between the time that Lincoln was elected in November 1860, and his inauguration in March of 1861, in those days the inauguration was in March, not in January. Yes. Seven Southern states seceded from the Union. And so during those four months, Lincoln said very little about what his position was on secession uh, in the midst of that crisis because he wanted to collect his thoughts and, and give his final assessment in his first inaugural address, which he did. Now, Ron, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, <laughs> was that a good decision for him to say nothing during those four months? <clears throat> That's a very, very good question, Talmadge. Uh, Lincoln, he, you must remember, Lincoln did not campaign in 1860. His point of view was everything that I have said has already been written. You can understand what I already think. So chapter nine is the idea that he actually thought of giving a speech in Kentucky on that 13-day inaugural trip from Springfield to Washington. And that's an amazing speech. It's been completely overlooked. What would he say to people in the South? But in that speech, once again, he says, you know what I believe. This is what I believe. If your candidate, and he names them, would go back on what he said once he was elected in 1860, November? Would you want to support someone who went back on his word? If you want to turn me out, if you want to have another election, you know, four years from now, that, that's your choice. But I, I'm not able to, and I don't think you'd appreciate or respect the integrity of anyone who changed their point of view just because they were now in a new elected position. Mm -hmm. Now we come to your final chapter, which uh, has to do with this meditation on the divine will. And I did not include this in my introduction of Ron, but uh, Ron is not only one of our nation's leading historians, he's also a graduate of the Princeton Theological Seminary. He's taught at that seminary and he is an ordained Presbyterian minister. 
And so, Ron, much has been written through the years about Lincoln and his faith journey in light of the fact that early in his adulthood, it appears he was something of an infidel, that he never joined a church, and there's no clear evidence of where he stood on the subject of Jesus as Messiah. So when people ask you about what was the breadth and depth of Lincoln's faith, what's your answer? Well, first, as you suggested early in our conversation, Lincoln is on a journey, and nowhere is he more on a journey than in his faith journey. Sadly, this has not been the depiction of Lincoln in all the traditional biographies. For as you just suggested, Lincoln, who grew up in the Second Great Awakening environment, rejects that, rejects the faith of his parents. By the time he moves to New Salem as a young man of 21, he actually writes a paper criticizing revealed religion, as he calls it, or the Bible. And one of his friends rips that paper out of his hand and throws it into the fire. We have three witnesses to that, because that's not a smart thing to do if you're going to be an aspiring politician. But then as it happens for all of us, life tumbles in. In 1850, he loses Eddie, three and a half years old. In 1862, he loses Willie, 11 years old. He then is leading a nation in the crucible of the Civil War. And he gravitates to the Presbyterian Church because here he finds something that is more thoughtful, more rational, along with his own predisposition to life. So he's on a journey. When I came to the second inaugural, I read the previous 18 inaugural addresses. Only one time had anyone ever quoted the Bible, John Quincy Adams, unless the Lord builds the house, a psalm, the the Lord builds it. Lincoln quotes the Bible four times. He mentions God 14 times, invokes prayer three times in 701 words. Where does this come from? People were very surprised at the second inaugural. That's why chapter 10 is a fragment. (laughs) He had been working on this privately, and I think he wrote this in September of 1862 after the terrific loss of the Second Battle of Manassas or Second Battle of Bull Run. And he writes eight sentences, the will of God prevails. In each contest, each side claims to follow the will of God. And then the logical Lincoln clicks in, one must be, both both may not be wrong. And then this remarkable sentence, it may be that God's purpose is different from the purpose of either party. And yet God uses human adaptations, human efforts, as it were, to affect his purposes. So I believe that by the time Lincoln gets to the second inaugural, he no longer is a believer, as a de- he's not a non-believer, he's not even a deist, where there's a God, it's a watchmaker God who doesn't intervene in history, but the second inaugural is about a God of providence. And providence for Christians is a God with personality, who loves human beings, and who enters into history. So... I think that this is a rather sophisticated theological document. It's not simply God, not simply naming the Bible. Everybody has to name God in present inaugural addresses, but often it's at the end of an inaugural address, and we need God's help too. For Lincoln, this is very profound, and I think it's not been fully understood. Uh, My friend Sandy Chris, who's a theologian in his own right, asked this good question. Could you hazard a guess about what Lincoln might say to a modern audience 
particularly as he's progressed in this faith journey, as you said in your last answer, about how we might pursue righteous ends, but with love and compassion for others. How would that engage? What are your thoughts? Number one, would Lincoln likely do that? And if he did, what would be the reaction? Wonderful, wonderful comment and question. Obviously, we live in a very, very different world, a much more diverse religious world. I've been interested and surprised at how both Jews and Muslims have responded very positively to Lincoln's second inaugural address because he uses what I call inclusive language. Again and again and again, he will use the words all, 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 both, both, both. In the political sense, he's not condemning the South. He's saying both sides did not want this war. And so I think the inclusive language of Lincoln is a key to how he would respond today. I think we're caught in a real dilemma. On the one hand, I don't think the Christian faith can be simply a private faith. On the other hand, we're kind of struggling with how in the world would you then express it publicly in such a diverse environment as we live in today. But I think the second inaugural is a great clue, is a great key as to how you would do it. You do it inclusively, with respect, and as this questioner suggests, with love and compassion, with malice toward none, with charity for all. I mean, that is just remarkable. I read the diaries and the letters of the people who were there at the second inaugural. Not surprisingly, everyone there had probably lost a father, husband, son, brother, and they were angry at the South. And they wanted Lincoln to express their anger. He did not express that anger at all. This was a speech about reconciliation. And that's why I think the Christian faith undergirds the speech. It's about reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Now, Ron, you say in your epilogue, that after researching and writing this book about Lincoln's written thoughts to himself, you started doing that. <laughs> and so uh, is that working as a private pressure valve for you? <laughs> it, it, yeah, I hope it is. I mean, sometimes it's I live and dream and think Lincoln 24 hours a day. So I have to keep a pad by my bedside table at three o'clock in the morning. I get up and write something down. I think the only way you can possibly write a biography is to try to live inside this person. Obviously, this is the 19th century. I say to audiences, Lincoln can't help us with climate change. He can't tell President Biden what he ought to do in Afghanistan. But yet there's a spirit here. There's, there's a, the way that I think he can be a role model for all of us in the way that we can approach each other with respect. We don't have to agree with each other, but we can approach each other with respect. So my notes to myself, whether it be on Lincoln or earlier on Grant or now on the future biography of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, are my attempt to try to understand, to get some insight into the way I might approach this particular person. Now, this whole process of notes to self is is a process of crystallization, distillation, synthesis. Yes. And uh, uh, Jeremy Mendel has has another good observation that that all these short notes and and Lincoln, as you point out, was famous for short speeches. The the second article, seven hundred and one words. The Gettysburg Address, what around three hundred two hundred and seventy two words. So, so, so Jeremy says, would Lincoln do better uh, in the age of Twitter 
then in the era when everybody else besides Lincoln was, you know, speaking for two hours, three hours. But I, I think the lesson of history is people would always prefer precision and synthesis and, and using only necessary words. And that's really what makes Lincoln stand out as the, the ultimate communicator. Uh, that's my perspective. Do you- well, he, he, he didn't always write short speeches. When he hit the campaign trail in 1854, as he began to respond to Stephen Douglas and popular sovereignty, he gave a speech in three different locations in Illinois. The speech was 17,000 words. 17,000 words. But you're right. I really believe that less is more. And Lincoln learned that lesson as he moved forward. Less is more. So the first inaugural address was took about 35 minutes. The second inaugural address took about six and a half minutes. And I think that's a lesson we might all learn. Another follow-up from Zubair Miniaku. Going back to kind of the Henry Clay, the great compromiser who was Lincoln's great hero. On the other hand, as president, Lincoln refuses to compromise on uh, allowing any states to stay seceded and also refuses to compromise on permitting any remnant of slavery uh, uh, in, in the country. And so Zubair says, how did he pick which issues to compromise on and which to hold steadfast on? That's a fantastic, (laughs) fantastic question. I've never thought of that question before. Obviously, there are certain, we might call it red lines today, but uh, Lincoln came to the belief about slavery, as I suggest, in the middle of the Civil War. And this became something for which he would not step back. So that at the end, his final speech uh, after the Peace at Appomattox, John Wilkes Booth was in the audience. This was at the White House. And when Lincoln suggested the possibility that some African Americans, certainly soldiers, might deserve the right to vote, why this was the last word for John Wilkes Booth. So, how Lincoln came to that decision, what is compromising and what is not, I think it goes back to his understanding ultimately of the Declaration of Independence and wanting to have the all men are created equal become more of a, of a of the, of the way we go forward. He even understood that it wasn't everything. I mean, obviously I was asked, I've been asked the question of what about the role of women? Unfortunately, that was not on the radar of Lincoln in his time. That would come after the Civil War when women said, well, my goodness, we have now given freedom to the slaves. Don't you think we need freedom? But that was after Lincoln's death. We have a question from my friend Fielder Nelms. Many times in this program, Ron, you have referred to Lincoln as our greatest president, which I happen to agree with. But there are people who think otherwise. Some people think George Washington. Some people think Franklin Roosevelt. Some might even think Jefferson. Uh, What makes Lincoln the greatest, in your opinion? We all know it's a matter of opinion. But in your opinion, why, why does he stand out as the greatest? Well, it's very interesting. I've just received in the mail from C-SPAN. They do a presidential historian survey after a transition from one president to another. So I have to turn in my votes by June 1st after we've moved from President Trump now to President Biden. 
obviously each of the three, if you think of Washington, Lincoln, Roosevelt, were in the great crises of our country, Revolutionary War, Civil War, Depression, and World War II. Does the man make the times or does the times make the man or woman? Uh, you could argue for all three. I, I just think that Lincoln's depth and breadth of, of not simply leading the nation through the Civil War, but articulating what the values of the nation are, would, to me, put him at the top. His speeches, his understanding of what is unique and, 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 and perpetual of the America as in its democracy and freedom, I think this is why he's the greatest president. All right. Well, as promised, I'm going to end this wonderful conversation with my friend Gary Ward's conversation saying, Ron, since you probably have as much or more insight into how Lincoln thought his whole process, here's the hypothetical question. Let's say Lincoln magically appears in the United States <laughs> in 2021. How do you think he would address the country today on the topics that he would consider to be the most important? What would be his tone? What would be his strategy? Uh, put him into today. We are every, as you say, everybody's ever under president aspires to be like Lincoln. So, so how would Lincoln operate today? Well, first, I would think it would be tone. Uh, I think he would speak softly, and the tone would carry with it respect. He would be very respectful for those who disagreed with him. He would never, never criticize their motives. He would never suggest that they were somehow less American than he was. He would want to talk about the issues. He would want to gather people together and hear what they had to say. And if he did talk, he would want to present their point of view in the best possible light, as you suggested earlier, Talmadge. He would not want to distort the other side. And so he, he would be wanting to do that. And uh, whether that could prevail in our tumultuous culture, I think he would want to hold his fire, which would be difficult at times in our 24-7 culture when the newscasters would contact him and say, all right, what do you think about this? And he would want to say, well, give me a day or two to think about that before I say anything. So whether he could persist in this particular environment, it's an interesting question. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't say for sure that he could. And yet I think somehow the values that he represents, not the values of a, of a specific issue, but the values of truthfulness and integrity and respect. And the one we thing we haven't really talked about, which I think undergirds my whole book, is intellectual curiosity. I, I really think we should gravitate to leaders who have intellectual curiosity, whatever the field might be, I'm drawn to them, a president of a college, leader of a business, a lawyer, a political figure. Lincoln's, it's his intellectual curiosity that is undergirding all of these notes. The fact that he wants to say, there's lots of things I don't yet know. And he's a lifelong learning learner. Remember, he only had one year of formal education. So the challenge to all of us, again, is are we lifelong learners? Are we willing at 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90? to continue learning. I think this is the Lincoln is the great role model for us in that. I think as far as, you know, the tone goes, which obviously is a huge problem in recent years and today, uh, the two words that uh, stand out for me is he always took the high road. Good, good. And, and I, I think 
that maybe uh, is the answer about you put them in any situation, uh, any any aggravating people around him who were attempting to throw him off his pace or his his focus. Uh, none of that kept him ever kept him from taking the high road, and that in my mind is is a supernatural power. I wish I had that power. <laughs> but anyway, Ron, thank you so much. I hope everybody who's been on this call, we've had a huge audience. Uh, uh, if you don't already have it, we'll get this magnificent book and go deeper on the man who Ron and I both believe is our greatest president. It will make you a better person. Uh, Ron, any closing uh, thoughts, uh, stuff we haven't covered maybe, or just anything you might want well, to say? Uh, Thank you. Thanks to you, Talmadge, and our great friendship. I love coming to Dallas. I love participating in the various events that we've done together before. I hope we can do one soon again in the future. And uh, it's it's my privilege to participate. Thanks for the wonderful questions and comments. I learned so much from the questions and comments. I'm very grateful. All right. Well, everybody have a wonderful day, and uh, we hope to see you at a future event. Lincoln in Private is Ronald White's fourth book on Abraham Lincoln. Ron is my personal favorite Lincoln biographer, and his new book does allow history lovers to go deeper on how Lincoln reached his conclusions than any prior biography of him. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember... As my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.